We're here today with Eric Cohen, co-founder and chairman of Investors Against Genocide, the president of the Massachusetts Coalition to Save Darfur, and the co-founder of Act for Sudan. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks, Jordan. So uh, the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Uh, well, I suppose it dates back to um, 2003, 2004, when so much of America became aware of the genocide in Darfur, Sudan, and that awakened uh, interest uh, of millions of people about that crisis, including me uh, at that time, and that uh, led me somewhat surprisingly into human rights work. And you had a career in information technology completely unrelated to advocacy or human rights work, correct? Yes, that's correct. It was quite a surprise to me that I ended up uh, devoting um, full time and more during my retirement to human rights work. So, uh, and particularly within the world of finance, because you hadn't been particularly invested or, or you hadn't been a professional in the financial markets, had you? Uh, no, I hadn't, but because of uh, working on uh, Sudan, I became aware of the problem of, uh, of uh, foreign oil companies supporting that genocidal regime. And uh, when the divestment, the Sudan divestment movement got started in the United States, mm -hmm. I and a couple uh, friends connected with the students who were working on that and learned through them about the uh, who those companies were, and they were uh, uh, four, at, at the top end, the worst problems were four foreign oil companies that were supporting the regime in Sudan, and that was significant because Sudan was getting all its uh, foreign exchange and government funding from its oil industry. Okay, so, well, first of all, for our background, uh, for our listeners who aren't aware of what's going on or has been going on in Darfur, could you explain what has been going on uh, and uh, and how that process has been evolving uh, over the last decade? Well, uh, we have, in the case of Sudan, we actually have to go back a little farther. Uh, the regime that's in place in Khartoum has been in place and led by Omar al-Bashir as president since 1989. And ever since then, there's been genocide after genocide after genocide in Sudan. Uh, the world uh, became keenly aware when two and a half million people died uh, in the civil war between the North and the South. That was termed a genocide by the U.S. Congress. And then when peace negotiations to end that civil war began in, um, in the early 2000s, the same government used the same methods to attack its own people, this time in the west of the country, in Darfur. That uh, genocide uh, became very highly uh, public, and uh, in the United States, it was the first genocide finding by the Secretary of State of the United States while it was going on, and that led to declarations of genocide by U.S. Congress and by uh, the, the President of the United States. It was unprecedented. Since then, of course, there's been yet another genocide in Sudan, again by the same regime, this time in the Nuba Mountains and in Blue Nile. So, we have a situation where this government uh, is responsible for multiple genocides, which is why I said genocide after genocide. And uh, this is really unprecedented in the world. Uh, you know, it used to be that uh, some people thought that uh, 
hard to know what was happening with genocides because you couldn't find out that they were happening until after they were over. But in the case of Sudan, we have a government that is responsible for not one but multiple genocides. So we know their MO, and they've been doing it repeatedly. Uh, and only the, uh, as I said, the uh, the one in Darfur became uh, so uh, well uh, recognized in the West. But it was so because of that that uh, millions of people in the United States became animated and were, uh, in, in effect, became activists more or less for the people of Darfur. And that uh, genocide began in 2003 and uh, and continues to this day. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. And to express our gratitude, we offer a few freebies to our supporters. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. So it sounds like there have been at least three separate genocides. Do the victims have anything in common? Is there What is the government's rationale for reaching out and targeting particular groups of people? Are they the same group of people or different groups of people? Uh, they're different groups of people. Now, it used to be in the very early days that some people thought that the government of Sudan and Omar al-Bashir and his party, the National Islamic Front, were doing this for religious reasons, that they wanted to institute Sharia law and they wanted to spread uh, Islam because in their war against the people of the South, people in the South were heavily Christians and animists rather than Muslims. But once the government in Khartoum turned on the people in Darfur, who were almost without exception also Muslims, that uh, theory kind of exploded. And what became clear uh, in that case was uh, that it uh, was very much tribal. The government in Khartoum saw the black African tribes in Darfur as beneath them. And uh, maybe more important, what became clear is that the government was using any division it could find in its people to turn its peoples against themselves to help them stay in power. So uh, uh, there have been a religious element, there has been ethnic elements, there have been uh, black Africans versus not-so-black Africans, uh, tribes that saw themselves as Arab and have Arab supremacists arrayed against uh, black African tribes, uh, there was slave-taking, uh, and uh, but it's pretty clear that the government in Khartoum will do pretty much anything in order to uh, keep itself in power. Great. Thanks for that overview of what's going on in Sudan. And, of course, now there are two separate countries. Is there genocide in both of those countries? Uh, unfortunately for the South, uh, it, after emerging from its decades, multiple decades-long conflict with uh, the North, which, as I said, was responsible for more than 2.5 million people being killed, uh, that uh, country had so little going for it 
and uh, it's a very diverse group, all black African tribes, uh, but uh, many different tribes. So they uh, had tribal divisions working against them. They had uh, virtually no development and hardly any money. So they had very little going uh, for them. They had no history of uh, institutions or governments. They had uh, fought for their existence by fighting for their lives against their brethren in the north. And having emerged from that and then subsequently winning their independence, unfortunately for them, the north did not let up in its efforts to undermine the south. And uh, the north was significantly responsible for further destabilization, including arming and paying one tribe to fight up against another. And uh, I guess it shouldn't be a big surprise with all that history and with the fomenting of conflict continuing by the, north, the government in the north that the South descended into civil war, which is it's still struggling with uh, to this day. Uh, there's a barely operating uh, government and there's uh, uh, ethnic uh, warfare that had displaced uh, half the country and uh, killed many thousands. So um, the, uh, the conflict continues in the South, even though it is a, a formally a separate country. And what's the role of oil in these conflicts. I understand that one of the countries has more access to oil reserves and the other to oil pipelines. Could you speak about access to uh, to oil and how it has played a role in uh, the genocides in Sudan? Yeah, so there are two phases to this. One is before the separation of uh, South Sudan from Sudan and then uh, after the independence of the South. And before the separation, uh, Omar al-Bashir, the president of Sudan, famously declared that when the West gave us sanctions, Allah gave us oil. And uh, what he was referring to was the discovery of large quantities of oil and the industrial exploitation of it, uh, supported by uh, foreign oil companies. This is the capability uh, of the uh, industry in Sudan was uh, uh, virtually nothing. So it was uh, totally dependent on uh, foreign oil companies in order to exploit the oil resources, and those resources generated funds, which you, which uh, the government then used to wage war against its people. And year after year, uh, the reports we have is the government used 70, 75 percent of all the revenues it got from the oil industry to uh, wage war against its own people. It's absolutely astounding. Without the oil industry and without the money from the oil industry, uh, the government just could not have waged war to uh, uh, the level that it has, to the magnitude that it has over so many years against its people. And now, these, uh, are predominant, these are predominantly foreign oil companies, uh, and I know that you've spoken uh, greatly about PetroChina in particular, but before we go into the actual companies, I wonder... Does any of the oil produced gasoline consumed by American uh, the American market? No. Okay. No. Uh, up until quite recently, uh, U.S. sanctions have precluded um, uh, any economic involvement by Americans uh, or uh, American companies in the oil industry in Sudan. Uh, that was set in law by executive order when Bill Clinton was president in 1997, I think it was, and that remained the, uh, the, the law through uh, all of uh, 2016. So no American oil company was helping support that industry, 
and no oil was uh, coming from Sudan to the United States. However, it was going somewhere, and this is why they were getting money. The four oil companies um, were, uh, uh, two of them were Chinese oil companies, and they're responsible for the lion's share of the support of the oil industry. And uh, China, in fact, uh, bought uh, three-quarters of Sudan's oil and imported it for its uh, domestic purposes. So that's where the oil is going, and that's where most of the money is coming from. Okay. Now, when South Sudan got its uh, independence, it turns out that uh, one of the reasons why it was so important for the North to fight the South and prevent its independence and why they fought so hard over the course of decades is that most of the, most of the oil deposits were in the South, some three-quarters of the oil fields that had been uh, under production were in the South. And when South Sudan finally seceded, they took those oil resources with them. Uh, unfortunately for the South, the only way to get money from those oil fields was the pipelines from those oil fields, which led north to Khartoum and then east to uh, Port Sudan, which is where uh, the oil went to market. So even though the government of Sudan had to let the South go and become independent, it had them by the economic uh, neck and could throttle them or not because the only way that oil could get to market was through pipelines that they controlled. So this led to a very complicated and uh, very messy relationship as both uh, countries jockeyed for supremacy over oil production and uh, oil delivery. And uh, they're both dependent uh, to a significant measure on each other and the North very powerfully used its leverage to punish the South. Does oil continue to flow through those pipelines in 2018? Uh, at, uh, at one point, uh, uh, the South turned off the oil. You know, it was just beyond them to think that they would be enriching the people in the North who had uh, been responsible for the death of millions of their uh, their brothers and sisters, and uh, as uh, conflict continued between the North and the South after independence, the South actually shut down the uh, the oil flow. This hurt the North uh, greatly, but it clobbered the South as well because it was their sole source of income, sole source. So they went into economic crisis, and uh, they just hadn't planned for how they were going to live beyond this. And, uh, and that made them all the more susceptible to the North using its funds to arm some tribes in, and uh, pay tribes to uh, attack uh, their neighbors in the South because the government in the South had no money. And um, uh, since then, oil production has resumed. Uh, the civil war in the South has uh, caused oil production to be limited, but some is flowing. So... Uh, we now have a, a little bit of background on a very complicated issue going back to the late 1980s. Uh, and uh, we see that uh, basically uh, oil is now being purchased by primarily by Chinese oil firms, purchasing 75% of Sudanese oil, PetroChina being one of them. And we see that there are American mutual funds uh, such as Fidelity and BlackRock and others that have uh, large holdings in these Chinese oil companies that are doing business in Sudan 
you discovered this, created Investors Against Genocide. Can you speak about uh, how you discovered it and came to create Investors Against Genocide? Yeah, so um, since we had got, we, uh, some friends and I had gotten involved with um, uh, activism on Sudan because of the Darfur genocide, we learned about the, uh, the push led by these college students for divestment from Sudan-related uh, companies. And they had a very interesting idea, very different from uh, what uh, people remember from divestment from apartheid in South Africa. Their idea was not blanket divestment, but to focus divestment pressure against the companies that were doing a lot to help the regime, but not helping the people. And when you look at it that way, you don't care about everyday things that are going on that are uh, not generating power for the the, uh, the government. You just look at the worst uh, problems. And so they were doing this research, and uh, and so we asked them the question, who were the worst companies? It was it was very clear it was the oil companies. And we asked who was the worst company, and that was very clear because the PetroChina CNPC group was the largest partner with the government of Sudan. And um, uh, the students, though, were focused on college divestment and state divestment. And um, since I and my uh, friends all had uh, business backgrounds, not in human rights, not in finance, but business backgrounds, we asked the natural question, well, who were the biggest uh, of, uh, owners of these oil companies? And um, although the students weren't working on that, they were very happy for us to pick up um, the, uh, the work in this area and uh, uh, the first time we looked, I remember very clearly, it was looking on uh, Yahoo Finance and looking up uh, PetroChina, which is sold in the New York Stock Exchange with the ticker PTR. And if you look in Yahoo Finance, you can click on the screen to ask for who the largest holders were. And I was shocked to discover that the largest holders were Fidelity Investments. Now, I live in the Boston area, and Fidelity is headquartered in the Boston area. Fidelity... Uh, is a highly respected, uh, uh, top-notch uh, financial company. Um, not surprisingly, it holds lots of the market in the Boston area. And uh, the company that I had worked for had uh, had us investing our 401ks in Fidelity funds. That's where our savings were. That's where my friend's savings were. We knew lots of people who worked there. We couldn't believe that this was uh, happening. And uh, that began us on our work. Uh, for uh, for what we might do to uh, affect this. Uh, at first, of course, we thought that the big problem was fidelity. Um, it turned out that uh, what we were looking at in the New York Stock Exchange was just ADRs. Uh, most of the shares in PetroChina that were owned by U.S. Uh, financial institutions were actually bought in Hong Kong, which are called H shares. So we were only looking at a part of the market, and we were focusing on one company, which is Fidelity. But if we step back from that, now we uh, discovered over time that there were more than one ways to, to buy shares in these companies. Most were bought in Hong Kong, and Fidelity was just one of the big problems. Since it was one of the world's uh, largest uh, mutual fund companies, it's not a surprise they would have large holdings. But it turns out it's uh, the uh, almost the entire financial industry, excluding uh, the uh, the niche of the market that's called ESG uh, uh, or socially responsible investing. They uh, don't need any help from us to know to avoid stocks connected to genocide. But Fidelity, Vanguard, 
Franklin Templeton, uh, J.P. Morgan, all, all of the big financial institutions were, and, uh, and small ones were uh, treating these companies as if they were just another stock to buy, despite the fact that uh, uh, Darfur Sudan had been clearly identified as a genocide. So this really animated us, and our hope was by working on it that um, we could get them to change uh, their investment practices, and uh, over time, um, we have had some successes, but I have to say the financial industry is incredibly resistant overall. So we, we savor the successes that we have had, but it's uh, been very, very difficult to get any movement in the financial industry, and um, uh, so what we're, uh, we're continuing to work on it, and we're hoping that over time, the financial institutions and the financial industry as an industry will learn some lessons from the example of Darfur and be better prepared for the future that uh, they'll have investment policies that will cause them to avoid investments in companies when they are aware that those companies are substantially contributing to genocide. Now, Eric, your website, and, and you often have presented in your testimonies to Congress, uh, states that 88% of Americans don't want their savings to be used to fund genocide. How would you reconcile that statistic with financial institutions' reluctance to divest? Yes, it's, it's really uh, uh, interesting and distressing thing. It, it, uh, let's um, um, just take uh, Vanguard as an example that says that it's owned by its shareholders and it really is operating the interests of shareholders, and uh, and yet they don't want to do what uh, uh, what shareholders want. Um, the uh, sometimes when I talk to these companies, they they uh, challenge me and say, well, you know, people don't really want that, and we point them to the uh, the research that shows that overwhelmingly, astoundingly, large numbers of Americans don't want any connection to uh, companies tied to genocide. That's different than Americans having any idea that it was happening because most people like me, when they find out about this, um, and when I found out about this in 2006, I was shocked. I couldn't believe it was happening. That led us to start engaging with Fidelity to try to, what we thought was, uh, educate them that uh, there really was a connection here. Uh, but it's clear at this point that the vanguards of the world know about the connection because if for no other reason, I've been telling them and we've been doing shareholder uh, proposals and getting them, their board of trustees, to have to uh, read sentences and vote on the matter, and uh, and yet they're pushing for it um, uh, anyway. We've had one case, and this was at uh, a, a fund from uh, ING Emerging Countries Fund, where the board of trustees, instead of putting their thumb on the scale and telling their shareholders how they're supposed to vote, they were neutral. And when they didn't put their thumb on the scale and they just declared themselves neutral on the measure, we our uh, shareholder proposal won 59% to 10%. That's about 85% of the people expressing an opinion who voted in our favor, which matches what the, uh, the research that we had done about public opinion very closely. But typically what happens is instead of being neutral, what the vanguards do what the Franklin Templetons do, what the J.P. Morgans do, what uh, the Fidelities do, is they say that management has carefully considered the questions 
and of course management isn't doing anything illegal and you should oppose this proposal. And most people who are already trusting the company with their life savings decide to trust them on the answer to this question. And uh, so, so that, uh, that that's why I say there's a big thumb on the scale. Uh, the shareholders are following the lead of the uh, of, uh, of management. Uh, and there's one other factor that's really interesting, uh, and it may apply to you. It certainly applied to me until I started getting involved in these matters, and that is uh, when I uh, held investments in a mutual fund or a stock, if I ever got something in the mail that was a 100-page onion skin booklet about some shareholder meeting and a ballot, I um, I took one glance at it, determined that I wasn't interested whatsoever, could not understand what the questions were about anyway, and I threw it away. And most people are, are doing the same thing when they have a chance to vote. They're throwing away their ballots and missing that chance to vote. And we think if those people were to read the ballot measure and see that there's a question relating to investments tied to genocide, that there's no question that we would win in an, to an overwhelming degree uh, their support. But um, so many of the people are throwing them away. I want to ask about your strategy of divestments. So I'm wondering if all financial divest- divestments require sales. And if it does require sales, I'm wondering if sales, if sales simply shift who is funding the genocide. So if you have a sale and you divest, does that imply that there's a buyer who will then in turn be be funding PetroChina? Yeah, so um, there's, there are, there's more than one reason, and I'll come back to your scenario in just a second, but I think the most important reason why the vanguards of the world should not be taking your money and my money and other shareholders' money and investing it in the worst companies supporting the worst regimes in the world is because we, the shareholders, the investors, the customers of the vanguards of the world, don't want that to be what's happening with our money. They should be keeping faith with us who are relying on them to be making reasonable investments. And, uh, uh, and when I say this, I'm not asking the vanguards of the world to change their business model and become uh, SRIs and only be doing socially responsible investments, but instead that uh, instead of having no concern whatsoever what any company does, at least raise the bar a little bit off the ground and avoid companies when uh, it's clear and they know it's clear that those companies are tied to genocide. So the most important. So this is the most. Let important me rephrase reason. the question, Eric. Suppose Fidelity completely agrees with everything you want to do. They say, you know what, we're divesting, 100%. How do they do that? Do they sell it to somebody? Does someone need to buy it? Yes. So, uh, yes, they do. So I'm going to come back to uh, the Fidelity example because there's an interesting story about Fidelity that I want to share with you. But um, for any given divest, so there's, um, for any given divestment, if you sell, obviously someone has to buy. So in that sense, that there's always someone who owns the stock. So you would incorrectly conclude from that, incorrectly conclude, that it doesn't matter if you sell. And here's why. Um, 
if you didn't know, and believe me, I didn't used to know, uh, but I know now that uh, when the uh, CNPC group wanted to raise money in the West, they needed capital, they created a, another company called it PetroChina and then tried to sell it, tried to do an a IPO, an initial public offering. And you'd think that it only mattered at the initial public offering uh, about the sale because they, the company, were getting the cash when the securities were sold and that all other sales after that were just different people's pockets. But this is not true. And the reason it's not true is, in the case of PetroChina, there have been more than one public offering. So we're used to hearing the term IPO, knowing the I stands for initial and thinking that's it. But it is not true. There are multiple public offerings. And not only are there multiple public offerings of stock, as the company sells more of its stock in order to raise capital in the West, but these companies are also issuing bonds, and that's another way to raise capital that's not uh, shares but are different kinds of securities that are uh, paying interest called corporate bonds. So these things are being offered to the market, and if we are able to push back on uh, just in practical terms on not uh, if the financial industry didn't want to be supporting um, uh, financial instruments from the CNPC PetroChina Group, and pushed back on that and did it in the first, that is the initial public offering, that would have affected the company then and in the subsequent public offerings and in every bond offering ever since. So if you but, had Warren uh, Buffett and Fidelity simultaneously dump all of their shares in PetroChina, you would glut the market with an oversupply of stock, which would reduce the, the, the price of those shares and would also reduce the value of the corporate bond rating and reduce the incentive for further uh, public offerings. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, that's true. And this is why I I say that we would like the financial industry as a whole to learn a lesson from Darfur, so that they're prepared in the future to resist involvement with uh, such problem companies in the future, and if the entire industry acts that way, then the Warren Buffett, well, Warren Buffett no longer owns any PetroChina, but the vanguards of the world or whoever might be tempted to buy such things will say, hey, wait a minute, we can't be doing business with such companies and don't have to get involved in a uh, divest scenario. Now, Warren Buffett was an early purchaser of PetroChina, and because he's not a stupid person, when he decided that he had to sell every share he owned, and he did sell every share he owned. Um, he uh, he did it over the course of several quarters, and uh, the markets are big enough that it actually didn't cost. There was no discernible impact on the price. There was discernible impact in the uh, appetite for uh, future uh, shares as he got out, but the price itself was not crashing as a result of uh, of, uh, of his uh, divestment. So, I'd like and to this is typical. Eric, I'd like to bring the the conversation. Actually, um, we're, we got we're approaching the end of this episode. So I'd like to bring us um, to an actionable, uh, somewhat perhaps more uplifting uh, message for our listeners. Uh, investors may be saying, "Well, you know, I have a four hundred one k. I don't really know what's in it. Maybe it's with Fidelity. Maybe it's with some other uh, investment bank." Um, I know, Eric, that you've testified in front of Congress in favor of something you referred to as the Genocide Free Investment Act. We had many different criteria. 
that you were encouraging Congress to adopt. Many of our listeners will say, well, what can I do? So uh, as we wrap up this podcast, I'd like to ask you to speak to investors around the country, uh, especially um, inactive, passive uh, investors, as you described you having been yourself uh, in your previous uh, job. What can investors do to make sure that their money isn't funding genocide in the Sudan? Well, the most important thing that investors who care about this can do is to call their investment company, whoever they are, and tell them that they're concerned about it and they want their investment company not to be investing their money in companies that substantially contribute to genocide. And um, if they do that, that'll be an important voice of the customer that their company gets to hear. It may be that they'll have a chance at some point to vote on a shareholder proposal because of work that we're doing getting shareholder proposals on ballots. But mutual funds rarely have shareholder meetings. Uh, In the case of Vanguard, for instance, uh, they just had one in 2017. We had it on their ballot. But the one before that was in 2009. So it's not every year that they do it. So it's rare that people will get a chance to vote on such a measure. So calling their uh, company can make a difference. Uh, You know, I mentioned that uh, the vanguards of the world are very resistant, but we have had some successes. T. Rowe Price decided to agree with us, and they sold every share that they had in PetroChina and uh, Sinopec, the two Chinese oil companies that we were talking about, and they kept them on a blacklist, and they won't buy them again because of their involvement. Uh, We uh, had a success with TIA Kress, who also decided to agree with us, and did a press release on the matter and have blacklisted these companies. Uh, we had a success with American funds who uh, used to own uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of these companies and sold it all and has stayed out. So companies can do it if they want, but it's good for them to hear the voice of, uh, of the customer. So that's the single most important thing that I would ask people to do is to call uh, their, their, uh, their company and raise their voice on the matter. And, and although Sudan may not be in the news so much uh, these days, PetroChina and uh, CNPC Group and the Sinopec Group, who both were the, uh, big partners in the oil industry in Sudan, they are also partners with the government of Syria, they're partners with the government of Burma, and they're partners with the government of Iran. And all three of those are very much in the news. So don't think that this is only a question that had to do with Sudan, and therefore it's old news because you're not seeing it in the Washington Post or the New York Times or the L.A. Times anymore. These same problem companies are doing the same things for the same reasons because they don't care, supporting the very worst regimes in the world. So even if you decide that Sudan's old news to you, there's still good reason to be raising your voice. And that has been Eric Cohen, the co-founder and chairman of Investors Against Genocide, the president of the Massachusetts Coalition to Save Darfur, and the co-founder of Act for Sudan. Eric speaks about his gradual uh, involvement as an activist uh, against genocide and and his uh, gradual involvement uh, in divestment efforts to use the world of finance to pressure companies uh, who are profiting off of uh, the oil resources in Sudan and directing some of those profits back to the North Sudanese government that is using those uh, 75% of those funds to perpetrate acts of genocide. Uh, Eric speaks 
about his efforts to get individual investors, oftentimes passive investors who aren't even aware where their mutual funds are invested, to uh, encourage that their uh, that their investment uh, advisors divest from these sorts of controversial funds. And so doing, Eric hopes that that the money will apply pressure on these despotic regimes and hopefully will reduce the incidence of further violence in the future. Eric, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jordan. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.